Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is storytelling consultant and blogger Gareth Dimlow. Hello, sir. Hello, Stuart. Nice to be here. A returning guest, I should say. Uh, you were you were That's one right, of my yeah. you were one of my um, pilot episodes that that basically coined this format when I I tested the water with five great British horror films. You did one of the first six, I think, and. Uh, it was from was that. It really ex- that early? Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've done about uh, of the five format, which is what it branched out into after doing twenty odd um, great British horror film versions. Um, I did after the first six. I did shorten it to five minutes per film as opposed to ten. Which so speaking to someone like you, giving ten minutes of film is is great. But I had some guests on who just give me a list of films and didn't know, and, and I knew more about it than they did, and I was like. I can't fill ten minutes for somebody's selection every time. That doesn't yeah. that doesn't work. My problem is trying to chop it down to ten minutes. So Ex- we'll, we'll be speaking pretty quickly today. <laughs> well, look, uh, what we're going to do, uh, dear listener, is um, as 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 I suggested, um, this is a an extension of the original Five Great British Horrors, and what we're going to tackle is five queer themes in modern horror. Uh, we've got five films selected, but before we dive into the specifics um, of the films that you want to highlight, do you want to talk about generally about what this is about? How about read about reading horror films per se, and what you what you sort of what you're asking us to look at and notice, I suppose. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. I think that at the moment we're at a really interesting time in popular culture where we're finally over the hurdle of representation and we're starting to see a good level of representation of LGBTQ plus characters and storylines and representation, not only in front of the camera in terms of the characterization, but also the talent behind the camera and also the people playing those roles on screen. So people are getting to represent their own authentic stories on film. Before today though, that wasn't always the case. And I think what, was always a challenge for for particularly queer film fans and horror fans especially was finding that representation, was finding films that spoke to that audience. And what's really interesting is over the years, I've met lots of other gay people who love horror. It is their genre of choice. They absolutely devour it. And yet it's really weird because, you know, I started watching horror movies probably in 1985 when I was 10 years old. And as I grew up and I just consumed more and more horror movies, and at the same time, my own identity was forming, what became more and more apparent was I never felt represented by the characters. What I had to do was find motifs or traits or subtext that delivered something to me. And I've had lots of conversations with friends, both here and in the U.S., some one in particular, my friend Peter, who um, is really involved in the um, the archiving and the the storytelling around the Friday the Thirteenth franchise, we've talked a lot. Peter, about, what's Peter's surname? Uh, Peter Brackey. Okay, he wrote Crystal Lake Memories, which is the oh wow, yes, of course, yes, guide to the Friday the Thirteenth franchise. Mm. Um, but we've talked a lot about what the appeal of horror is to gay audiences and. We're generally in agreement that, that there are lots of things, particularly, you know, the concept of the final girl that Carol Glover identified in Men, Women and Chainsaws 
that idea that you can identify with a female protagonist because those kind of archetypal male characters are not usually pushed to the fore, particularly in slasher movies. But there's something else as well. And I was listening to um, John Cameron Mitchell, the writer-director of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Oh, right. And he was on a podcast recently, and he was talking about his own podcast, which was a a fictional autobiography of the version of him that he might have turned into had he not left his tiny little Midwestern town <laughs> as a teenager. Uh, it was actually, he was talking to RuPaul, and RuPaul put the question to him, how did you get out? How did you get out of this small town? And he said, well, it was through art, it was theatre, it was culture, it was music, it was performing. And that conversation turned into a broader discussion of why is it that so many young queer kids find their way into the performing arts? What is it about performance that, and, and art especially that draws those people in? And he said something that I just thought was so profound and it's changed the way I perceive all of these conversations around subtext, which is that gay people generally embrace subtext much earlier because they have to. They have to settle for finding subtext in something where a regular straight audience can watch a film and just take it for what it is because they see themselves represented, they see authentic lives and, and stories being told, whereas gay people have to try and find a code that sits underneath it that speaks to them or that gives them some glimmer of uh, recognition or authenticity. And when he said that, it just, it was like I just had a click in my brain that went, ah, now suddenly that makes a lot more sense. And if you look at great horror and, you know, there's a conversation right now about meaningful horror, you know, films like Hereditary and Midsommar, um, films that are about something else, Babadook and um, Relic, the new Australian film, which is really fantastic. All of these films use the tropes of horror to talk about something else, to talk about meaningful human relationships and challenges and psychology and all of that other stuff. And if you go back to that point that John Cameron Mitchell made about looking for subtext, gay audiences are attuned to finding the subtext. So if you look back to those classic universal monster movies, Dracula, the subtext was about sex. The werewolf, the subtext was about animal instinct and, you know, the dark urges inside. Frankenstein was about man's hubris and trying to replace God. All of those horror archetypes were based on subtext. And we as a queer audience are used to recognizing that that subtext is there, finding it, cataloging it, and just finding something else to enjoy in a film that presents itself as, you know, 90 minutes of bawdy knockabout entertainment. So that really is where I'm coming from in terms of finding films that have gay code running through them. Sometimes it's explicit and sometimes, as we'll see with the first film that we're going to discuss, it's almost accidentally explicit mm. because the people making the film didn't even realize what they were doing at the time now um not to not to help prove your point um but as a, as a, as a young as a young man growing up with with a straight world on a plate everywhere he looked because he was he was comfortably straight and everything i managed to watch can't stop the music and not see that anything, anything in that went to the cinema to see it, and it wasn't. You know, you think like because you're not seeing the world, you're not seeing it. It's all obviously. I see it now as an adult, and it's plain as the nose on my face. 
But when we saw the pitch, yeah. it was just, you know, YMCA song, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. And and that's the thing is that, <laughs> you know, the, the danger is when you make any generalization about any group of people, someone else is going to get offended or upset that mm. they're being generalized against. But I do think that broader point that queer audiences are are trained from an early age by themselves to look for subtext, to look for code. And if you watch a movie like, uh, or read Vito Russo's uh, classic book, The Celluloid Closet, he talks extensively about how audiences were given code hmm. that they could decipher, things that they could recognize, things that they could identify with, where things like the Hayes Code expressly forbade any kind of depiction of the gay lifestyle. So they had to find workarounds. Hitchcock did it repeatedly in a lot of his movies where he never once had a gay character, but he had lots of queer characters in those films, in movies like Rope, in Rebecca, in Psycho, where those elements were there, but they weren't really allowed to be explicit. So he was content to just provide you with clues and cues. And we as an audience were able to take what we chose to find in it. And like you just said with <laughs> young Stuart sitting in a Manchester cinema watching Can't Stop the Music, not really noticing it was a gay movie. Um, you can choose not to take those cues. That's the great thing about subtext is it's there if you want to. I wouldn't say the subtext to Can't Stop the Music, though. That's why I was kind of... It really isn't. You were there for <laughs> Valerie Perrine with her top up and hot tub. <laughs> Well, look before before we get into your choices. Obviously, there was there's there's a, there's a lot there's a lot of films that you could draw on, and a few yeah. we want. There's there's five we're going to draw attention to when we talk about it outside of the podcast. But there's there's a there's a, as I guess a kind of contra- controversial filmmaker in this post social media age. Um, yeah. uh, Victor Salva, who did the Jeepers Creepers franchise, that we sort of had a conversation about before we recorded, but. But just looking at that first one before we go into your choices, I mean, obviously, the, the point being is that Victor Salva's uh, convicted paedophile from back in 1988, you know, served, yep. for, served 15 months in prison. But what But what is it about Jeepers Creepers? Because, again, look, looking at that, thinking, watching that film when it came out, I don't remember, I don't remember even, I mean, again, but not not quite as, as mistaken as I was when I watched Council of the Music, but... Um, what what was it about that one then that that came to the fore for you as you you were watching that film from a kind of and I think if I remember correctly, Jeepers Creepers came out I think two thousand one. Yes. So I didn't know anything about Victor Salva as a filmmaker. All I knew was this was a successful horror movie that had done you know big box office in the US, and the trailer looked scary as hell. Hmm. And the first thing I noticed was it had a male and female protagonist who was siblings. They weren't romantic; they were siblings. And all of their conversations in the establishing scenes in the first act are all around her teasing her brother about a suspicion that he might be gay. It's never said explicitly, but there's lots of teasing about he's a mummy's boy, he's not very good at dating, he's still really uh, connected to the family home. And there's a there's just a really strange vibe through all of it where a conscious choice has been made for this not to be a romantic couple on a on a getaway or a honeymoon or anything like that. There's a very conscious choice that there's an attractive man and an attractive woman, but there's no sexual chemistry there. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's an important choice, and isn't it, in that film? 
And as the story progresses, what you actually have is an interesting take on horror tropes whereby up until about the midway point, the expectation is that the beautiful girl, Gina Phillips, is the final girl. And in a way she is, because she's the one who makes it to the end in one piece, except she's not the target, the boy is. Hmm. And so you've got this weird leathery male figure who gets, he literally gets a scent for this young man and then pursues him through the rest of the film. And at one point there's a, there's this scene that feels throwaway in the moment until you go back and reflect on what's really happening in this movie where there's a, there's mention made of the fact that he um, accidentally put colors in with his, his, his laundry and he dyed his underwear pink mm. and he has his name on it. That's right. Yeah. And, and the creeper sniffs his pink underwear with his name on it. And that gives him his sense. So he's able to track him down. And the whole thing feels like a metaphor for someone who's not out of the closet yet, who has a sexual experience with an older person who that they've given away some of their anonymity, you know, in the film, obviously it's his name is literally written in his underwear, but this connection of identity and sexual identity that then becomes a marker where he can't shape this pursuing figure. Of course, as you said, you know, one of the, the creepy things when you start looking at Victor Salva's um, filmography is how often this creepy older predatory persona tends to come into play as well. And it, it creates this really uncomfortable tension we were discussing before we started recording, this idea that it's really easy for uh, homophobic people to conflate homosexuality and pedophilia, um, and they're two very different things. And unfortunately, in Victor Salva's back catalogue, what you get are films that, you know, tread a really strange line between those two things. Mm. Um, I do still maintain that um, the first Jeepers Creepers does have a really interesting queer vibe running through it. But as I said, I, I think any discussion of Victor Salva's films are always going to be tainted by what we all know about Victor Salva as a filmmaker, which is why ultimately we decided that that wasn't going to make the grade as one of our five choices today. Indeed. So that gives me a lovely segue to choice number one. But before we do, just for those that don't know the format, it's uh, five films and five minutes chat per film. Um, mm -hmm. That's going to be difficult for Gareth. So I've got my my alarm, um, which which will force him to move on to the next film so we don't spend... 25, 24 minutes on on um, on Nightmare on Elm Street two, which is the first choice, and then yeah. one minute on four, just giving out four titles. So yeah. when the five minutes are up, people yeah. will hear the bark of Pig, the French bulldog from uh, Kennington. Yeah. Um, not really him yet. That's just the iPhone bark. But I am getting Dan Martin, who did funny enough a film we were talking before, did the VFX on um, Possessor. Is going yeah. to sample his dog pig, so uh, this will this so will. So then it'll be a real one. Okay, this, great. Then it'll be a real one. But without further ado, clock ticking. Um, tell me the um, tell me the queer themes that are evident in a Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two: Freddy's Revenge.
Well, I, I think the first thing to say about this is anyone who's interested in the themes that we're discussing today um, would be well advised to uh, check out the documentary on Shudder, Scream, comma, Queen, which is the Mark Patton story, which really goes into 90 minutes of detail about his experiences as the male lead in A Nightmare on Elm Street to Freddy's Revenge, mm. but also uh, to seek out the book uh, Monsters in the Closet by Harry Benshoff, which is which is to queer horror what Men, Women and Chainsaws was to feminism and horror. Mm. Um, and Benshoff speaks quite extensively about A Nightmare on Elm Street too. There's a lot to love in this film, for particularly for queer horror audiences. I think at the time it probably set a fledgling franchise back a few steps because the audiences just did not know what to do with this weird film. It was bright, it was sunny, it had a male protagonist instead of a female uh, final girl. Um, he was quite effeminate. You know, he's a screamer. He literally wakes up screaming um, every morning and comments are made about it. His parents worry that he's going off the rails and he might be on drugs. He's got um, a relationship with a girl who feels more like a beard than a girlfriend. Um, and at the points where a sexual experience is being established, he's literally confronted with his own horrifying sexuality as this grotesque tongue lolls out of his mouth. Um, and he, he literally has to package it back into his mouth like an embarrassing erection and rush away to his really rather attractive male friend who then says, you know, the object of your affection is lying on the cabana floor and you want to sleep with me. It's really fascinating that the filmmakers, particularly um, David Chaskin, who was the writer, and uh, Jack Shoulder, the director, they're two straight men. They did not know they were making a gay movie. And it's quite have remarkable. They, have they said that? Have they talked about that? Well, it's interesting. You you can choose who to believe. At the time, they professed absolute ignorance. Yeah. And it was only as the film started to develop a bit of a, a cult reputation for its ridiculously homoerotic overtones. I mean, there's a scene where Jesse goes sleepwalking and ends up in a leather bar. They knew they were filming in a leather bar because the head of the studio, Robert Shea, was in a leather harness serving drinks behind the bar. There, there was no accident there. Yeah. But scenes like the uh, the coach, the high school coach, who then abducts Jesse and takes him back to the gym and forces him to run around the gym and then hit the shower at three in the morning. There's a weird kind of butch seduction thing going on here. It's just a really de detailed level of accidental homoeroticism. <laughs> Subsequently, David Chaskin did admit that he thought it would be interesting to use the abject terror of being gay as a subtext in the film. Unfortunately, he really handled that conversation badly. Uh, firstly, he said that he intended his script to be homophobic because he wanted to instill a fear of homosexuality in people. And secondly, he was quite critical of Mark Patton's performance, arguing that Mark Patton simply played it too gay for the film to be anything other than accidentally queer. And the journey that Mark Patton goes on in his documentary Screen Queen is basically him 
trying to reconnect with David Chaskin and get an apology for a dismissive remark that he feels effectively ended his career in Hollywood. Wow. I so mean, it's, it's a really fascinating movie. I mean, that's, 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 on, that's on lots of levels then, isn't it? That's, that's, that sort of goes beyond the film in a sense. Um, oh, it really, it really <clears> does because what you've got here is, you know, a male scream queen, you know, literally and figuratively, um, whose own life is overlapping with the life of the actor playing him because he was a, you know, a very successful on the rise young gay man who wasn't yet out, who was being advised by everyone that if he wanted a career, he was going to have to keep that a secret. This was 1985. These were much less liberated times. They were, they were. <laughs> there's, um, there's Pig to tell us to move on. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so we're going to jump five years to... Yeah, uh, 1990. 1990 for Clive Barker's Nightmare. <laughs> So this was um, an adaptation of his own. I've seen people call it a novella. I remember reading Cabal and not feeling it was a novella. It was a full 300-page novel. Yeah. Um, and it was supposed to be the start of a series, which I'm really disappointed Barker's never really followed up on. I think he was um, he was so scarred by how badly Nightbreed was handled, uh, despite Morgan Creek putting an awful lot of money into it, for a horror movie at least. Um, I feel like he's never really gone back to Midian and you know, develop that world anymore, which is a crying shame. But the story in Cabal and Nightbreed is a young man is uh, seeing a psychotherapist uh, because he's haunted by the sense that he thinks he's a monster and he's looking to solve the mystery of what lies locked in his brain. His psychotherapist is played by David Cronenberg in the movie, who is actually a serial killer and decides to set up this young man, Boone, by implanting some memories in him to make him think that he is this serial killer. But what's real? And so Boone basically runs away to this mythical place called Midian, which is a, a town beneath a cemetery in rural Canada, where he meets a breed of monsters, creatures of the night, who um convert him into a monster and his estranged girlfriend laurie follows him to try and patch things up but by the time she gets there he's pretty much dead already and has come back as this monster it's all kind of dark gothic you know tragic um horror stuff it's it's really well done i mean there's some really unfortunate uh matte paintings and studio lighting that sort of makes it feel smaller than it really is and it's probably too convoluted to really work as a movie i loved it because i'd read the book and i'd read the graphic novel so 
I felt like the film was just serving me stuff I already knew, but everyone I know who's watched it without reading the book really struggles with the story. Well, I mean, and that was why they did the, there was the, the, the patch together re re recut of it, wasn't there? That That's found right. footage that tried to piece together what would have been, but, but thinking about what the, the thesis of this podcast is then, I mean, obviously written and directed and a novel written by a gay man. Yeah. But a gay man who wasn't out at the time. And yeah, I yeah, think- yeah. I think what's fascinating about Nightbreed, and I definitely picked up on this, was this is a young, a young man who feels that there is a persona living inside him that is affecting his relationships with other people, and that he he literally has to throw on his leather jacket and run away. To I was going a, to say, isn't isn't Midian almost like the idea that that that. San Francisco, yeah, Midian yeah. is San Francisco. Yeah, the, the, it's the place where the monsters live, where yeah. you can go and you'll be accepted yeah. as another monster. And monster in this context is any other. It's just other. Hmm. Because the monsters, some of them are sort of shapeshifters, some of them are kind of weird, ghosty smoke creatures, some of them are almost vampiric or, or werewolfy. The idea is that there are all of these different tribes, but to me, it feels like a very clear metaphor mm. for that idea of needing to find your true self by leaving behind a provincial life and going to a place where you're going to be accepted. What makes it even more interesting is the idea that even as he goes, his his girlfriend, Laurie, um, follows him because she's in love with him. And whilst he loves her, he also has to answer to this other calling that is demanding that he be his authentic true self. So again, I think this is what I love about horror movies that offer up some kind of gay subtext for us to interpret because they go, here's a story that you can take at face value, or there's something else going on underneath it that speaks to that authentic experience that so many LGBTQ people have. I mean, it's interesting because obviously we, 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 we talked before we started about, about Jeepers Creepers and it being a brother and sister, but both these first two examples have the protagonist with a girlfriend, even though the girlfriend yes. is not really the, the reason for living or dying. It doesn't become, yes. doesn't factor as much as, as, an, as a traditional love story would. And in, but I think what's really important, that's a great point, what's really important there is that the women are important in both of these stories. Mm. They are critical to the um the well-being the stability of the lead character but they're not essential as a romantic lead mm. in fact they're, they're almost like a mirror to remind themselves who they are as yeah. opposed to as, as opposed to who they love but, there, but there's also a point where they very clearly represent the female best friend that pretty much every gay man has <laughs> Well, moving swiftly along to 1994, to Neil Jordan's yeah. interview with a vampire. With a human soul. An immortal with a mortal's passion. You are beautiful, my friend. And this, this was a really interesting one because I think when Anne Rice wrote Interview with the Vampire back in the 1970s, she was writing the book to channel her grief about losing a daughter to leukemia. And the premise of the, the Vampire Chronicles that she created was uh, this sort of dark wish fulfillment of if she could have frozen her daughter in time, 
before she died, would that have been a good thing or would have been would it have been horrific? So that idea ultimately manifests in the character of Claudia, who's played by um, Kirsten Dunst in the movie. Out of that, because it required vampires, you know, the, the traditional sort of brooding, handsome, gothic male characters sprung up. That's how he ended up with Louis and Lestat. And that became a, a popular book series. But when Neil Jordan decided to adapt the movie, um, I think this was off the back of crying. He'd already made Crying Games. So he was... As a, as a filmmaker, he was kind of keen to explore the the kind of darker sexuality of these vampires. Vampire stories generally involve sexuality, or rarely explicitly gay, but there's always a, a subtext of just broader sexuality than, you know, missionary position marriage. Uh, there's always other stuff going on. Um, and I think what was really interesting when Interview with a Vampire was made was the outcry about Tom Cruise being cast because Tom Cruise, his entire career has been dogged by rumors of either uh, being a closeted man or at least being a devoutly homophobic man who, you know, finds comfort in his homophobia in the church of Scientology. So the fact that he was taking on this role Anne Rice herself famously wrote, um, I think it was a letter to variety or took out an ad in variety where she she um, decried the choice of Tom Cruise. A second, she'd always had how she'd always had Rud, Rutger Hauer in her mind for Lestat um, because she knew that Rutger Hauer could play the sort of louche, dark, um, almost bisexual character. Because that's the thing with most of the the vampires in Anne Rice's um, vampire universe is they're all kind of loosely bisexual. You know, they they're attracted to you know, women with their breasts falling out of their dresses, but they're also forming these um, relationships with each other. Louis and Lestat end up in a sort of gay marriage with a an adopted daughter for much of the story. And it just sort of happens because they can't find anyone else that can... I mean, at one point, I think it's literally, they can't stand... No one else can stand to be around them. Yeah. So they they're sort of forced to create this replica of the nuclear family with you know two fathers and an adopted daughter and it's kind of dark and twisted i mean i'm certainly not holding this up as a positive representation of a gay relationship but it was interesting at that time in 1994 to see a major blockbuster studio movie about vampires that didn't shy away from the innuendo of these two men coexisting in a you know a seductive um, relationship that had some element of mutual attraction at the heart of it. I feel like I'm being told that I didn't watch films properly at the moment. <laughs> it is. It's like it's it's a real. You, 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 I'm like I'm like you. I'm like your bloody thesis in reverse. I'm like I have evidence that it's it's all too easy in a in a in a very straight dominated world to to see everything as surface and not question it. I obviously question. Other themes like grief and trauma, those things I'm yeah. always looking for because they feel they're, they're, they're universal themes that defy sexuality. They're not about, you know, but like mm-hmm. I'm not having to look for this other this this other information that might be laid in the film. Yeah. Whereas for a, a queer audience watching Interview with a Vampire, it, I remember seeing in the cinema thinking I'm 
this is as close as I'm going to get to seeing a major Hollywood horror movie with two male leads gently caressing each other's face, leaning in. Are they leaning in for a kiss or are they leaning in for a feed? It's not entirely clear. Mm. And, you know, it, it's also an, a, an abusive relationship because they attack each other and they fight and it's, it's really quite brutal. Like I said, it's certainly not a positive representation of a gay relationship, but it's definitely something that Anne Rice intended. And I, I think as the years have gone on, she's become more and more vocal about the homoerotic components of her vampire mythology. Um, and it, I, I, think, I think it's a shame that we never got a proper sequel. We just got Queen of the Damned, which was something else. It was indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Now, shift in tone now uh, to a contemporary yeah. to a contemporary horror and contemporary in in terms it's the our first entry into the twenty first century, uh, where we're yeah. where we're we're pre social media, but I think we're we're definitely feeling more more liberated in terms of representation and and uh, needing to bury any of this now. This there's there's more there's more that can be out in the open. So, do you want to talk us through uh, your choice of Hotan? Oh, I can never say French words. I'm Our French accents are going to be terrible. But tension. Let's call it Switchblade Romance because it's much easier to say. And he is one of my favourite genre filmmakers. He's right up there with Mike Flanagan for me. I mean, he's the exact opposite of Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan's kind of broody, moody, emotional. Alexandra Aya, Aja, Aja, um, is grisly, grindhouse, he's brutal. He's, he's someone who can make remakes that have something to add, that have an interesting perspective, and he's really not afraid of the red stuff. Um, Port Tension is a really fascinating film. Um, it's very hard to discuss without spoiling the ending. Um, I think, I think so, it's safe to say for the purposes of this podcast, given we'll put the list of films that are covered, we yes, can expect okay. spoilers because it's 17 years old. Seen, if you haven't seen Port Tension and you want to, stop listening to this. Bit. Yeah, this it is, a big, forward, it is a big spoiler. Scrubble forward about five minutes. The big reveal in Port Tension is it's, it's two girls who go back to one girl's family uh, farm for a weekend and there's a there's an interesting uh, tension or attraction between the two of them it's never quite clear what their relationship is they're staying with a family so they're in separate rooms but there's clearly you know if you're looking at this as a as a sort of lesbian relationship it's interesting that one is you know traditionally very femme she's long hair and very pretty 
The other one is has very short pixie cut hairdo. And and so it feels like it's a very sort of cliched representation of what might be a lesbian relationship. But then a killer invades the house and murders the rest of the family and abducts the daughter, leaving the friend to follow and try and rescue her friend slash girlfriend. It's revealed at the end that the killer doesn't really exist, or at least the character of the killer doesn't exist, but it's actually um, the other girl who's followed her in the truck um, all the way to the to the grand conclusion. Um, and it was her obsession with the girl that meant she needed to kill the family and, and steal her away. I'll be honest, I'm not entirely convinced by the twist. It felt like it required it required you to forget too much of what had already gone on before, but as a depiction of, you know, a really grisly, gruesome, violent, obsessive relationship. Um, it's certainly an interesting choice. I think it's marred slightly because the first half of the movie is a direct steal from uh, a Dean Koontz book called intensity. And there was a, a court case that not a lot of people knew about, where I think Dean Koontz's publishers uh, attempted to sue um, Aya and his film <gasps> company oh, really? for, for copyright infringement because they basically nicked the first half of the book. And there, were, there was a kind of slightly dubious, yeah, well, we were inspired by it and we, we wondered if anyone had noticed, which, you know, in terms of <laughs> copyright infringement defense isn't overly convincing. Uh, but the fact is, the first half of intensity is almost exactly what happens in this uh, movie in that the two girls go back to one girl's family's home, a killer invades, kills everybody and takes uh, one girl away uh, as a hostage. What this adds, of course, is this extra twist and this, this um, homoerotic relationship between the two girls where, you know, the, the girl that we think is, self-appointed savior is actually uh the oppressor and that gets like i said revealed in the final act it, it's it's a very uh love hate twist and there are as many people rave about it as absolutely hate it um yeah it's kind of it's it's the, the problem it has is is it's it's a twist that because because the the mystery that builds up and you're you're scratching your head as to how this is going to resolve itself and how the the person in peril is going to get saved, and then to reveal there is no kidnapper, there is just yeah. there is somebody fighting themselves. Is and it it's also it's it, it it retcons too much of what you've seen. It 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 literally says that thing we showed you earlier didn't really happen. Yeah, whereas um, like say Sixth Sense or, or or much closer Fight Club, you can you can you can go back and go yeah yeah he was never in the same room or they were never. Yeah. With you know, whereas this literally shows you scenes that couldn't really have happened because they require two protagonists, and the argument that there's one doesn't really work. But yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting choice in terms of talking about you know the clear elements in horror movies. Is it was also it's good to see um, female characters represented in this conversation as well. Indeed. Well, look. Last but no is least is 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 completely new to me. Um, although it's only t- it's two thousand eighteen, so I'm grateful for you drawing me attention to it. It's Carter Smith's Midnight Kiss. 
Hey, Joel. Did you pick a card for the new year yet? Mm -hmm. Change is coming. Out with the old, in with the new. Mm, exactly. I'll see you soon. All right, bye. How have you been? Okay, she's spoken for. Remember when you guys were just switching each other in and out of your bedroom? Like the sluttiest game of musical chairs. And you guys? Oh, yes. We don't have to do this. Any game? Yeah. No, no, babe, I want you. I don't want things to be different just because I'm here. We've moved on a bit from 1985, I do believe, Gareth. We we really have. And, and I think this is why it was so interesting to start this conversation with the importance of subtext. But, you know, we're horror fans looking for codes and clues that give a contemporary relevance to them as they're kind of watching genre movies. Um, Midnight Kiss is part of a series of made-for-TV movies uh, produced by Bloomhouse Studios, who made um, the Insidious movies and Paranormal Activity and all of those. You know, they're a they're a pretty efficient engine for turning out great genre mm. material. And this was one of their first forays into TV production. And what they did, I mean, Bloomhouse is already known for making low-budget horror movies, but these are even lower-budget horror movies that are often giving you know, directors, their first shot, they're using mostly unknown cast. Um, and the premise of Into the Dark, which is the name of the series, is that each month there's a new movie themed after a holiday. And so there are 12 movies over a year and it's now been running for two years, which, you know, by my calculation makes 24 movies. Midnight Kiss was really interesting. This aired at the end of last year as the New Year-themed episode. Mm. And the reason it's so interesting is because there's no subtext at all. This is a slasher movie. It doesn't pretend to be anything other than a slasher movie. It is literally a bunch of characters isolated for a party weekend in a big house, and someone is killing them off one by one. The difference is they're all gay men, and the film is written and directed by gay men, and the actors are gay men. So we've come to the logical conclusion of all of that conversation around, you know, subtext, the closet situation that uh, Mark Patton had to deal with in Nightmare on Elm Street. Here we are where there is a broad range of, you know, successful out actors who are able to play authentic gay characters because what happened in the past is you either had gay actors having to play straight, you'd have a straight actor playing gay who would have to dial up the stereotypes in order to play it for laughs. Yeah. You'd have a gay filmmaker making something for a heterosexual audience, or you'd have a heterosexual filmmaker thinking that they could do a little bit of gay representation and ending up doing something rather crass or vulgar. Here we've got a gay movie, and it's just as um, shallow and simple as a good slasher should be. The characters are picked off one by one. It's kind of brutal. It's tense. Some of the characters are kind of slutty and annoying. Like I was going to say, what does it set free? The, 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 the pressure to keep everything suppressed and for people to look for when it doesn't have to be hidden. What does that release in terms of what you get on the surface? 
Well, what, what you get instead is instead of it being a bunch of co-eds going off to a uh, rural um, cabin and then being picked off one by one by a, a nutsy woodsman, this is a bunch of gay men who go off to um, Palm Springs to a mansion for a New Year's Eve party and they're having a weekend of hedonism and they play a game called Midnight Kiss, which is where the uh, tensions within the group come out because the Midnight Kiss premise is they're allowed to kiss someone at midnight and follow through with them. Uh, but what that does is it opens up a bunch of uh, frictions within the group because some of the group have previously dated and are now in new relationships. But of course, they're all staying together in this one house. So there are you know animosities and yeah which uh, which would be which would be very tropey in in a straight thing you would have couples who've seen each other and there's old love relationships would come out whereas the token gay man or the token gay woman in a group of people on a sleepaway doesn't allow for that no that and, narrative, and does it no and that, and that's the challenge is you know in the handful of occasions <laughs> where you know a gay character has featured in a regular slasher movie they are deliberately asexual they they have no mm. identity other than to stand on the sidelines and make sort of flip quips um or do something camp whereas in this what you've got even in the in the group of friends is you know an interesting diversity of character types and certainly watching it it felt authentic and true into again it's still dealing in in tropes and cliches because the film's only got 90 minutes to establish a bunch of characters, kill yeah. them off and then re- reveal who the murderer is. But it was really refreshing for me to finally in 2020 be able to see a film that felt like all of those films I loved as I was getting into horror, you know, 30 plus years ago. But this time it was people like me that I saw represented in terms of the characterization. It reminds me of, of um, I remember listening to, I can't remember the, the woman's name, but she was talking about uh, gender equality with direct directors of Hollywood movies. And yeah. while she was happy to see higher profile women directors directing higher profile films, she said the day we would get equality would be when you've got hack women directors. You know, yes. there, are, there are straight men making movies out the wazoo that shouldn't be making movies, but they've got a career and nobody yeah. challenges their right to make a movie. But it almost feels like every woman's got to be um, a, a potential Oscar winner to justify herself. And I think the yes. idea that you could have a slasher movie where the entire group are homosexual men is... It, it gets rid of all... It gets rid of... It just is about that. And then they can be as yes. as ditzy and as and as as alpha and as whatever else you want to be is the one. Yeah. yeah, all of those, yeah. And and that's the thing. I mean, Midnight Kiss is directed by Carter Smith, who made The Ruins, which I think is one of the most um, disappointingly underseen horror classics of the last 20 years. It's a really great movie. So he's a filmmaker who's already had some success in the genre and knows how to, you know, make a beautifully shot, well-structured film. Mm. It's just interesting now seeing them getting a chance to make a film that's kind of for their for their people. Indeed, indeed. Well, look, it's um, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your uh, your five queer themes in modern horror. I'll just I'll go through the list, even with my appalling accent when we get to number four. Um, we've got Nightmare on Elm Street two, Freddy's Revenge from eighty five. We've got Nightbreed nineteen ninety, Interview with a Vampire. 
1994, Hotel Chant from 2003, and then Midnight Kiss from 2018, which I now cannot wait to see. Well, look, it is Friday the 13th, which we should have said at the beginning, even though this won't go out close to it, but it's nice to think we've just done a horror theme podcast. I recorded it on Friday the 13th. Feels very appropriate. And it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Thanks for having me, Stuart. It's great to be here. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.